Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabadie.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ashley Hay, former editor of Griffith Review, in her last appearance on this podcast to discuss the last book she edited for Griffith Review, Griffith Review 77, Real Cool World, which is all about Antarctica. As Griffith Review points out on their website, Antarctica has historically been a place where human ideas of exploration, investigation and fantasy have played out. But it's also a canary in the coal mine of climate crisis. Its rich ecosystem is sending increasingly distressed signals, ice melt, glacial erosion and a profound change in its precious flora. And we're going to be talking about those things today. Griffith Review Edition 77 is produced in association with the Australian Antarctic Division. And it features powerful writing from a number of disciplines, including climate science, marine biology, glaciology, geopolitics, international law, and much more. Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Now, the idea for this edition came from conversations that you had in 2019 with the late Jesse Blackadder, award-winning novelist who travelled to Mm. Antarctica twice in 2011 and 2018 on an Australian Antarctic Division Arts Fellowship. Could you tell us a bit about those conversations? I think Jessie and I shared a very profound love for that place. Um, as you say, she'd been fortunate enough to receive the um, Divisions Arts Fellowship twice to travel down there, the first time to research a novel, the second time she was working oh, on a suite of projects, um, including television scripts and uh, young adult fiction, all sorts of things. Um, I was lucky enough to go there in 2005, it was, as a journalist, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it is the kind of place, because it exists in our imagination so strongly, and for most of us it only exists in our imagination, it is a landscape um, and a location that has a really profound effect on anybody who gets there. Part of what Jesse and I both loved about it was just the richness of what was there of the the kind of work that could be done in the place and about the place compared to the sense most of us probably have of it being a pretty much blank canvas. So when I became editor of Griffith Review, which was back in 2018, um, some of the earliest conversations I had with Jessie were on the other side of that second trip she'd made down and we were talking about what a gorgeous thing it would be to dedicate an edition of Griffith Review to explore the continent. Now, this isn't, I have to say, this isn't um, 
an idea I can take full credit for. I know the founding editor, Julianne Schultz, had often thought about this as well. So I think it is that sort of rich space and area. But Jessie did something incredibly important. She connected me to the mm. Australian Antarctic Division. Mm. She connected me to particularly a fantastic woman called Sachi Yasuda, who works in the engagement space for AAD and works really closely with the Arts Fellows. And Sachi and I began a long conversation, which led to this book. We lost Jessie um, to a very vicious cancer in 2020. Um, when we were finally able to, you know, get this project off the ground, I contacted her partner, who's also the executor of her literary estate, Andy Davey, and I asked Andy if there was any of Jessie's unpublished writing about Antarctica that we might be able to bring into the book. I'm so grateful to Jessie for connecting me with the division in the first place and to Andy for giving us permission to use some of Jessie's unpublished diaries in combination with a blog that she kept in her last trip down there to just unpack for readers, some of the things that one writer went through trying to make sense of that great big space. And we're going to talk about that towards the end of the show. Mm. Let's start with the concept of Australia and in, in Antarctica, because I think a lot of people don't really have a great idea about it. So there were just a couple of things that stuck out for me that I wanted mm. to mention. So the Australian Antarctic Territory occupies 5.2 million square kilometres, which is 42% of the continent, which is pretty amazing. So I just want listeners to have that in their mind as they listen. The first piece I want to ask you about, um, Ash, and I'm going to be referring from now on to Antarc Australian Antarctic Division as AAD as well. Mm -hmm. So the first piece I want to ask you about is Nicole Webster's piece. So she's the AAD's chief scientist. By training, she's a marine microbiologist. Tell us about her memoir, Understanding Interconnectivity. Well, I was really thrilled that um, Nicole was able to contribute to this edition as the chief scientist um, for AAD. One of the things that's wonderful about Nicole's own story is that she began work as someone uh, working in more tropical spaces, working on reefs. And one of the things um, that is beautiful about her piece is the way she gives you this real sense of the connection between these two parts of the world that we think of as very distinct and different, the reefs, which we think about as, you know, up here in the warm bits, and Antarctica, which we think is down there in the cold bits. She talks about, um, you know, the, the way, well, about the connections literally between the ecosystems and between these landscapes and also about the way her own work has travelled between the two places. She also talks incredibly powerfully about the experience of diving under ice, mm. which, again, is something I don't think many of us are going to get to experience. Um, one of the things I love about this particular edition, as with lots of editions of Griffith Review, is the way that people who work at the, the real cutting edge of a discipline who are absolute experts in their field, you know, the, the sort of, you know, frontline researchers, writing pieces for us, they allow very personal reflections and responses to come in. They allow their own voices to come onto the page. And Nicole's was one of these pieces of, you know, she tells us a lot about the work of the division, division mm -hmm. the the scope and the scale of all the science that they undertake, as you said, Nick, the the amount of um, the amount of the continent that Australia's Antarctic territory 
uh, takes up is is very very close to fifty percent. It's forty two percent, and so what that means in terms of the work that scientists can do there, the sort of custodial role that Australia has taken on in this space, the importance of the division in terms of just making sure you know people can get to do what they need to do, can literally get down there to do what they need to do. It, it really centres an understanding of a very um, direct and productive relationship between Australia and that very deep south part of the world. And one of the points she makes is something that you write about in your introduction and a number of the other writers refer to as well, and that is this idea that the future of the polar regions is linked to the future of the entire planet. Mm. Um, could you talk a little bit about that idea? Well, I think, again, this is something that is, um, what's the word, sobering to think about. Um, again, Antarctica, for most of us, is an imaginary space. It's penguins and icebergs, um, that sort of thing. Uh, Antarctica itself actually functions as a, as a kind of a thermostat for the whole planet. And, and this um, partly is to do with the way the, the brightness of the white ice and the darkness of the ocean surface help to regulate temperature. So um, I'm not going to even attempt the deeper scientific discussion than that, but, but this, if you think about the way the sunlight, you know, comes onto the earth, there is this massive expanse of bright whiteness which is sort of reflecting that light and there's these massive... Um, expanses of dark ocean which are absorbing it and the the balance and the difference between the dark and the light are really crucial for uh, regulating temperature as a whole. Now when when climate scientists first started to focus on this beast of of um, of climate change and of the way that they thought we were we were locking things in to kind of unfold through the 2000s, you know, through the beginning of this millennium. I can remember right back at the beginning of some of these conversations, um, there was a sense that maybe Antarctica itself wasn't going to be impacted so much. Mm. But, but the idea of, of that piece of the globe, you know, absolutely separate from all of us in lots of ways, something we don't think of as anything to do with us, the idea that it, it helps to regulate what happens for the whole planet. It drives some pretty critical weather systems, particularly for us in Australia. There are links between droughts that are experienced in some parts of Australia and what's happening in Antarctica. These kind of interconnectivities at that kind of planetary scale I think are really crucial for people to understand as well as understanding what's happening in their own sort of particular local space. Mm. All right, let's talk now about fascinating piece by journalist Joe Chandler. So mm. she's done a piece of reportage called Buried Treasure. She talks about a number of things. What I want you to focus on and talk to us about today is the Million Year Ice Core Project mm. and Dr. Joel Pedro, <laughs> who's working on that. I oh, look, this was one of the pieces that um, I couldn't have made the addition without this piece. So Joe Chandler is an award-winning uh, science journalist. She has a long interest in writing about Antarctica. She's travelled down there a couple of times now with the division. She's been down as one of their um, media travellers. Um, and one of the things that is 
so powerful. One of the things that makes this piece so powerful, apart from the million-year ice core that sits at its centre, is Joe's been covering this space, oh, for, for more than 15 years, I think. This project, the ideas for this project, she spoke with people right back at the beginning of her time of writing about this space, about this project. So that speaks really powerfully, powerfully to me about the timelines involved with science, you know, how long it might take mm. to conceive of a project, how long it might take to work out how to do it, to work out even where to do it is a big part of Joe's story. There were there were people she spoke to 15 years ago at the really, you know, beginning of this planning who've now, you know, stepped away from the project to let the next generation of researchers like Joel Pedro sort of take the lead. And I think you know, you could never, you could never get someone to fund fifteen years of research for a piece of journalism. But Joe's essentially been working on this piece through all of that time. So to be able to give her the time and the space to say, we'd love a great big piece of reportage from this part of the world that draws on all of these conversations mm. you've been having. The project itself is a fantastic one. So one of the ways we can understand climate change is by understanding how climate has changed in the past. And one of the most effective ways we can do this is by, by using the records of the climate that are stored in ice. So if you drill into, you know, a very thick piece of ice and you extract a core, what's trapped in that ice are layers of soot um, and, and uh, bubbles of gas bubbles of air, um, pollen spores, all different tiny, tiny pieces of the world's matter that can explain incredibly particular things like what the temperature was or, you know, how strong winds were or what was going on at a particular time. Now, at the moment, the deepest ice core that we've ever drilled goes back roughly, um, I am not the expert in this field, but let's say 800,000 years. And what scientists know, and Joe's phrase for this is gorgeous, is that somewhere back around that time, just beyond 800,000 years ago, something cranky happened to the world, to the way that the whole, you know, global climate system worked, the whole planetary system operated. But we don't know what that thing was. So there's a quest for this million-year ice core which will drill down an extra, you know, roughly 200,000 years, whatever that is in, you know, length, pull out this information and, and hopefully give us some information about what that cranky thing was. Mm -hmm. And by understanding what drove that change, the hope is it will give us information about the changes that we have already locked into place, the changes that we are currently walking towards now. Mm. So Australia um, has really been, uh, you know, at the forefront of this, this, um, this particular scientific quest, I guess, for a number of years. As I said, it's, it's something that Joe's been talking with people about for more than a decade. But there are other countries involved as well. So mm. there, are, there are various European projects. China is drilling as well. I think there is an indication that South Korea and Japan are also interested. The important thing here is, and it's one of the really great um, subtleties of Joe's piece is not to think of this as a race, you know. there's yes. there, It's not about the first, but it's also about the necessity of more than one of these ice cores mm. so that there's a chance to replicate results 
that they get. The last thing I want to mention on this is just how tenuous this project is. You know, you've got to wait for the weather to be right. You've got to have the absolute, you've got to work out where to be and you've got to get there at the right time. You know, Australia's lost a couple of seasons now, bad weather, COVID, these things have impacted. Mm -hmm. So you've got this massive sort of um, technological amazingness going on just ready to happen. But the weather can just shut it down for a whole season. And I think there's something amazing about, you know, the, the, the intricacy of the science, the intricacy of the information that's on offer here and just how fragile and tenuous actually getting the whole thing off the ground is because you are dealing with Antarctica itself. Mm. Okay, so let's come back to this question of, um, of funding by the Australian government. And a number of writers refer to the fact that, or a lot of them, particularly the scientists, talk about Mm. their frustration at the lack of funding over many years. But in the last five years, there's been really two big rounds of funding, one from the Turnbull government in 2017 Mm -hmm. and one from the Morrison government in February of this year. Now, Tony Press was the director of the AAD for many years. In 2014, he gave the government a 20-year strategic plan, and he's written a great essay called Postcards from the Frontier, where he talks a little bit about the benefits of that funding and the, mm. the policy behind it. Would you like to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it sort of links back um, in a way to um, to the big ice core project that we were just talking about. It's a very expensive undertaking to do business in Antarctica. You've got to get everything that you need down there. Um, you've got to get equipment. You've got to get people. Um, you know, you've you've got to build the places for them to stay. You've got to take the massive tractors and hags and, you know, yeah. these huge vehicles that they need. So, you know, any any scientific undertaking is going to be exponentially expensive in that way. This does sort of come back to the idea of Australia's um, particular role in Antarctica. You know, if if we wish to lay some kind of claim to this massive percentage of the continent, and, and that's a bit of a, you know, um, a complicated story in and of itself under the Antarctic Treaty system, but... But we are sort of saying, well, you know, we are the people who are going to be here, we are going to resource this, which means we are going to be available if people get into trouble, we are going to help people on other bases, all of these things, all of the resources that this needs. So there had been a long period um, of, uh, you know, less and less funding. Um, There were a couple of big projects that were being explored in terms of um, how to get people down to Antarctica. There was a lot of planning put into uh, a runway, which was on the table for a lot of years before being taken off quite recently. But these two massive amounts of funding, $2.8 billion um, Mm. under the Turnbull government, and then another just over $800 million Mm. um, at the beginning of 2020. This is, as, as everyone sort of makes the point this is new money for this work and this is exciting it partly funds um massive new icebreaker which everybody is very excited about i was hoping you'd <laughs> mention that so favel parrot who was another one of they got another one of these aad mm. arts fellowships writes a beautiful piece called red heart red ship about this icebreaker which is described by some of the other scientists as a disneyland for scientists mm. tell us a bit about that icebreaker and about favel's beautiful story about it 
Favelle's piece um, goes back a couple of icebreakers now. So she fell in love when she was a little girl uh, with um, a red ship called the Nella Dan. And um, the Nella Dan sank very sadly and very dramatically, um, you know, a terrible sort of loss. No loss of life no. as far as I could, my dodgy memory can remember. Favelle had sort of carried this story and she, she, travel down to Antarctica on the next Australian icebreaker, the Aurora Australis, which was the first um, sort of purpose-built um, Australian icebreaker, again, from my memory, to research the novel that she wrote about Vanilla Dan. There's a whole beautiful um, spider's web of serendipities and synchronicities and interconnections in Fable's piece. It's just gorgeous. But she also becomes entwined in the story of the new icebreaker, which is called the Noyina. And how this happens is after her book has come out, she's, you know, had this beautiful arts fellowship, she's invited to be part of the judging process for the competition to name the new icebreaker. And what they do, what the division does is it puts the call out to schools all over Australia to send in suggestions for names. Two schools suggest the name. I Lina. love that. Yeah, and it's a Palo word, which is the, the Indigenous language of um, First Nations Tasmanians. Um, which means the Southern Lights. So it's this lovely kind of echo between Aurora Australis's name and, you know, the RPS Noibina, Noyina is a, is a beautiful kind of nod. It's This ship is just, it is magnificent. It has, um, it has the capacity for scientists to do so much more research and work. They make the point, don't they, that it's like a floating laboratory. It's not That's just to right. get people and equipment no, between Australia and Antarctica. That's exactly it. It's changing this idea from just the ship moves everyone from A to B to do what they need to do and brings them back. You know, this is allowing them to work while they're on the ocean, um, to bring things like live krill samples back to Hobart, to to collect in a whole different way, to survey in a whole different way. It's, you know, got more birds. It's got bigger capacity. It, it, It just can do everything. So there is high, high excitement in the division about this extraordinary new piece of equipment, this extraordinary floating thing. Um, The Noyena had its first uh, season south last year. Um, There was massive excitement about it making that first trip. Um, And there's this beautiful kind of, um, this beautiful kind of journey that is reflected through Fable's piece in terms of just the lovely conversation between the different ships and, and what they can each allow the scientists to do a little bit differently. All right, let's move now to um, one of the central themes of this book, and that is the impact of climate change in Mm. Antarctica. Now, you set out some basic facts in your introduction. Again, just for the benefit of listeners, I'm going to summarise them because I certainly wasn't aware of them. I think it's helpful to know. So average temperature on the Antarctic Peninsula has risen three degrees in a 50-year period. And in March of this year, three hugely significant things happened. First, there was the collapse of an ice shelf, which is some 1,200 kilometres squared, the size of Rome. Mm. Second, there was a heat wave, temperatures more than 40 degrees above the monthly average. I mean, 40 degrees. And the third was that at Casey Station, one of the three Australian stations at Antarctica, it rained. And that is something that is previously unheard of. So with those sort of facts in mind, let's have a look at some of the pieces which examine the effects of climate change on different ecosystems in Antarctica. I thought we'd start with uh, writer James Bradley's piece, Mm -hmm. and he looks at the effects 
on krill in his piece of reportage called Warnings in the Water. Now, I'm going to ask you, Ash, because I had to look it up to tell us about krill, what they are and why they are so important for the environment. <laughs> Look, I have to confess, when I started having the conversations uh, with the division about, about this book, when I went down to Hobart, in fact, it was the last trip that I made before we all started getting locked down in 2020, um, and they took me into their krill laboratory and I saw krill for the first time. So I think James describes them um, pretty perfectly as saying, they're a bit like a prawn, yes. except they're not. So yes. we have this idea of krill being tiny, tiny, tiny little things. They're actually, um, I don't know, maybe the size of your finger or something like that, and they're, they're these quite complex, elegant creatures that sit at what James describes as the bottom of an incredibly short food chain. So basically everything in Antarctica eats krill, which means when you think about it, if you take the krill out, everything in Antarctica doesn't have anything else to eat. It was whales and penguins and seals. Yes, and they all survived. Yes. And there was something else that was really interesting, the point that he made, that as well as that, but as well as them being a source of food, they they eat algae and mm. algae absorbs carbon dioxide. So by them eating the algae, uh, he says they absorb about 12 billion tonnes a year of carbon mm. dioxide. So that's mm. another really crucial role isn't it they are this phenomenal um organism that does an amazing amount of work in terms of something incredibly minute like the algae all the way up to you know the biggest whales you can think of mm -hmm. are building that incredible body mass and energy on these little creatures so what james does part of what james does and, and one of the reasons i i love his piece of reportage is he takes the very small entity, which is krill, and he looks at the way it intersects with the very big entity, which is sea ice and ice sheets. And, and there's something really powerful in the way he brings those two very different scales together. Mm. Now, I, I love James's work. This piece is part of a bigger project that he's working on at the moment about oceans. He was another writer that I was very keen to get in as a, a sort of a really core piece for the book. Um, one of the responses that I loved most when the book first got out into the world was Joe Chandler's. Now, as I say, Joe's been writing in the Antarctic space, in the climate space for years now, and she described a few key moments in reading James's piece as, as almost being poleaxed by the power of what he was getting down onto the page. Mm. And one of the points that really grabbed her, and I, I love this because it's it's a tiny little fact that is so easy to just brush over and when you sit with the size of what it's saying, it's so immense, was she was talking about, you know, we all know that rising temperature is a problem and, you know, lots of different organisms are impacted by um, rising temperature, whether that's air temperature or sea temperature, yep, that's part of the krill story. But if you're an organism that lives in the sea, the other thing you have to deal with is ocean acidification. And James makes this, you know, really important point um, mm -hmm. that embryonic krill don't really, sorry, adult krill don't really seem to be affected by the acidification that we know will be in their waters by 2100. So we know that this rate is coming. That's already locked in. 2100 is really soon and the adults, you know, don't look like they're too impacted by it. 
but embryonic krill are. And so that means suddenly your adult krill are going to be fine, but you cannot replace Mm. any populations. And then when you think about that very short food chain, all the everybody's who eat the krill, how close 2100 is in Mm. terms of, Mm. you know, planetary timescales, you start to get a really visceral sense of Mm. interconnection, of immediacy and of scale of change, which I think is incredibly important. All right, let's move to another ecosystem. Let's look at moss and the impact on moss. And um, I want to talk about with you the essay by biochemist and physiologist Sharon Robinson, who's written an essay called Among Ancient Moss Forests, and that's about the moss beds at Casey Station. So tell us a bit about her work and about this essay. So the way way that I found Sharon, um, and she was one of the scientists that I approached to contribute to this book, was through another mighty piece that Joe Chandler had written for us about climate and COVID um, back at the beginning of 2021. And Sharon studies the mosses at Casey Station. Joe has a great uh, anecdote about the first time she was down at Casey. You know, she was so taken by the great big things and Sharon would keep saying, would you like to come and see my moss? And Joe would go, oh, I'm very busy over here with this very big thing. Anyway, um, Sharon's been working on these mosses for, for decades. Uh, and one of the points that she makes in her piece, which is all about, well, partly about the importance of setting up very um, long-term, longitudinal studies so that you Mm. can actually, you know what is changing because you know what the baseline was. Mm. And coming back to what you were talking about in terms of funding, another theme that comes through a number of the pieces is just the difficulty of getting the funding for this really fundamental um, measurement, this really fundamental knowledge. You know, Sharon has a great line in her piece about how each time she would have to go and ask to be able to get the money to do the next survey, she'd have to kind of remake the project, you know, give it another twist, give it another flavour just to make it look almost sexy for the funding body just so she could go down and get the next reading to put into the data set. And I, I find that quite shocking. Like that's the sort of basic science that you just think, well, surely surely that's a given, you know, okay, the million-year ice core, I get that that costs a lot and you might need to really have to um, go all out to get it. But this stuff is just about just about seeing what is going on and how it's changing so that we can understand, you know, much bigger questions. So she has been, um, she has data now from 2003, 2008, 2013, they missed 2018, um, they got a data set in 2022 because of COVID delays from the 2020 season. And one of the points that she makes was that when she began this project and, and began to take these measurements, she did not expect to see change in no. her lifetime. No. She did not expect that she would witness it. She would be setting up, you know, she would be setting up the data set so that the next generation, the Joel Pedro of Mosses, would come along and pick up the work. Instead of which, there has been profound change in in some Antarctic species, you know, which we talk about in some of the other pieces. There's been horrific dieback. Um, you know, there are instances of some of the flora in Antarctica going from being, um, I'm just trying to get the phrasing right, being of, you know, sort of least concerned to critically endangered in one step because the change is so dramatic in yeah. their in their biota. And I think that's another important thing to understand as well. The way the biologists expected to observe change was at a particular rate, a yes. particular pace. Yeah. 
I loved one of the points that Sharon made where she writes, you know, these are all very sad stories of flora and fauna that is dying or under threat, as you say, at a rate much faster than people expected. But I, lo- I love the way that Sharon in particular emphasised that she wanted her work to be used for a purpose. So she said, I basically, I, I don't just want to research and write about um ecosystems under threat just for the mm-hmm. sake of it. I want to write about it to prevent further damage, to underpin action, to inform better management of Antarctic es- ecosystems. Now, if that's not an argument for greater funding for this sort of longitudinal research, I don't know what is. I think too it's another place where it's really interesting to extrapolate out from Antarctica into the broader space. So another of the fantastic scientists we have in this book is Dana Bergstrom. Dana published um, an incredibly important, she was one of the authors on an incredibly important paper a a few years ago now, which was all about tipping points. This is a a phrase that I guess we're increasingly familiar with, but she was she was interested. And with this group of uh, researchers, they put together um, a number of ecosystems. I think the horrifying number that they got to was seventeen, mm. which had passed their tipping point, which mm. were you know entering the, the time of ecosystem collapse. Mm. And and I think this speaks really powerfully to Sharon's point is. You know the point of the point of identifying these systems, the point of monitoring what happens there, isn't just to say, "Oh my God, this is terrible. We're losing this. We're losing this." It's also to say we can see what happened as we moved up to this point, and we can see, you know, maybe we can think about what could have been done differently. And again, maybe this is a very small, you know, fairy green plant on Macquarie Island that none of us are going to see, but maybe it has a direct. Um, it, it, it can feed directly into how we think about managing things where we are. So let's talk about Dana's piece because mm. she looks specifically, so her, her memoir is called Observing Life on the Edge, and she's been working in this space specifically uh, on Macquarie Island for over 40 years. She first went there when she was 21. She's now in her 60s. And she's one of the others who also talks exactly as Sharon does about this concept that she didn't expect to see the change in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now, she talks specifically about the effect of climate change on what she calls endemic cushion plants. Now, I don't know if I'm going to get the pronunciation right. I'll have a crack at it, called Azarella macquarieensis. Mm-hmm. And they are a keystone species, which are apparently 200,000 years old. So what Tell us a bit about her paper and what she's observed in relation to those cushion plants. Again, this is um, this is a sad story of great change. Um, but what it also is, I think, and again, this is, you know, Dana's another example of um, the scientist who brings onto the page not just the, the work that they're doing and the scientific knowledge, but also their own personal experience of being there. I loved, Dana writes about the way that, She's been travelling to Macquarie Island, um, you know, as you said, since she was in her 20s, and she talks about the way being in that environment has actually changed her body. It's changed the way she moves. It's changed how she feels things, how she sees things. And I think that's a really interesting kind of knowledge to think about. So the plants that she is looking at, um, you know, we're back in the space of we're back in the space of heat waves and diebacks and you yeah. know all those sorts of yeah. horrific things. Um, the cushion plants are the cushion plants are um, 
are, are some of the oldest plants on the face of the earth. Um, they're plants that, you know, because of their age, they can tell us so much about the past. They're, they're like the ice cores in a sense. They have this other knowledge tracked in them. Um, but they just, you know, they are they are under threat. They are so far out of the way of us as, you know, a great big agent of change on the face of the earth. They're so far out of the way of what we think of as civilization of what we think of as pollution, but they are being impacted by this change. It's a sub-Antarctic yes. island. island. Um, yes. So when when we think about Australia's Antarctic territories, for us that is, you know, quite a big slab of the continent itself, but then there are sub-Antarctic islands like Heard Island, which Dana also talks about, and Macquarie. And I think the other reason that um, Dana's piece is um is so powerful is she talks about the way her her sort of quite fundamental ecological research had to change itself to accommodate this thing called climate change, which was, you know, suddenly coming to the forefront of scientific attention. And then, as you said, just just understanding that that wasn't going to be a hypothetical thing, that, that the changes were going to be observable by her. Um, she has a very great line uh, which is actually not in her piece, but in Drew Rook's piece about Macquarie and Drew, Island. So Drew quotes her quite extensively. That's right, where she talks about realising the scale of dieback um, and she says it's a holy fuck moment yeah. and I don't think you need much more explanation right. for what for what she's seeing and what she's understanding at that moment. Let's, um, let's have a look now at the pieces or I'm going to focus on one of them, on um, about the melting ice and the rising mm. sea level. So as you say, James Bradley deals with that quite extensively in his piece, but since we've already talked a bit about him, let's talk about Rebecca Priestley's um, memoir. So she's a senior academic. She's travelled to Antarctica many times on public engagement programs, and she's written a memoir called Coming Soon to a Beach Near You. Tell us a bit about that, Ash. I love this piece. Uh, Rebecca is based in New Zealand. Um, this is one of the pieces we commission a number of uh, works for each edition of Griffith Review and we also have a general call out and this was one of the pieces that came to us through the submission. Um, as a reader, it is one of my favourite forms. Rebecca and I had a long conversation. We called it a memoir because it is so imbued with her personal experience of having to work at the forefront of science communication um, but it could it's one of those beautiful you know almost braided essays of just you know the lovely work that um, Jenny Offal does in weather of just these these quite small pieces that accrete to cumulative an enormous enormous story um, so I, I love the form I love her voice and I just love the honesty that she brings to the page so she works um, in science communication she's a humanities academic but she works with scientists who are working on um, sea level rise and ice melt um, and it's her job to help them communicate what mm. they know is going on. And so her piece is about the conversations that they have. Um, some of those are, you know, just sort of personal conversations. Mm. Um, she has a great anecdote about talking to a guy at a conference trying to nut out, you know, the best way to describe something and, and you know, just when they have to finish the conversation, he steps forward to her and says, we're all going to die. And she says something like, yes. this still troubles me. And it's this beautiful understatement you know it's yes. it's she's got this lovely sort of dry you would have to say dark sense of humor because of the space she works in the other one I love is where she's 
you know, again, someone is saying to her, you know, but how do we communicate this? How do we do it effectively? And she says, sometimes when I get asked yeah. about, you know, communicating Antarctica and sea level rise, I just want to scream, the fucking ice sheets are melting. And then she writes, this approach is not informed by theory. And she gives you this, you know, she gives you, she gives you so much information about how ice melts, which doesn't sound like it's a complicated thing until it is. Yeah, so much information about the scientists that she's working with, about how she's now seeing the scale of what they understand is in train impact on their own life choices in a sense, you know, their their sort of own fragility and mortality. And she also writes, um, which was something that we spoke about recently, um, an event that I I chaired recently for Avid Reader about Joelle Gerges's new book, Humanity's Moment. She also, uh, Rebecca also talks about a funeral that Iceland held for a glacier. We oh, had yes. a question in Joelle's conversation from someone talking about a particular landscape in um, Papua New Guinea that is being profoundly impacted by climate change. And I think there's something really important here to acknowledge um i love that iceland or love is the wrong word i mean i'm profoundly moved and grateful mm. that iceland has responded to mm. the end of the glacier's life by saying you know we will stand here and mourn you we will acknowledge your loss we will acknowledge your moment you know the end of this and, and they talk about it there was a plaque she that's right. well to a very moving plaque that's that right and we will acknowledge we could have done something about this we could have helped to save you um that again is another moment that i really hope will make people kind of sit for a minute and go mm. oh that's that's what's at play in the world that's what's at play in my world i think um the the last two lines of that plaque for the for the glacier read this monument is to acknowledge what we know that we know what is happening and we know what needs to be done only you know if we did it and it's being written to the future james bradley um sort of comes around to this point at the end of his piece as well where he talks about you know the, the ice of now that will be read in the future and says you know what what are what is going to be found there is it going to be the record of some cataclysmic change or is it going to be something less convulsive are we actually going to manage to just put the brakes on and preserve more than we destroy ash let's have a look at something that i think david bridey Aria award-winning songwriter and composer mm. writes about really beautifully, and that's uh, he's he's one of a number of um, creative artistic people whose work is featured in this edition. He really writes, I think, very powerfully about the role of the artist in all of this. So, he's written a piece called "Silence in the Song," and in January 2022, that's earlier this year, he was meant to be going to Antarctica with a video artist as part of the Antarctic Arts Fellowship. And they were going to collaborate with Dr. Joel Pedro, coming to talk about circles and connections, who's the one that Joe Chandler writes about in the, the um, Million Year Ice Core project. They were going to collaborate on a piece which he called An Ambitious Joining of Art and Science. Now, mm. sadly, that's had to be postponed. It's gone over to next year. But tell us a little bit about his piece and what he has to say about the role of the artist in all of this. I will, and I want to come at it a little bit um, laterally, which won't surprise you. In Kim Ellis's piece, Kim's the current director of the AAD, he writes about the A factor, which is, you know, 
the thing that Antarctica will throw at you from left field, which means you can't fly or you can't, you know, get to somewhere, you can't talk to someone. It, it means you've always got to be ready for unpredictability. So I was so delighted uh, when we, we knew that this edition was coming. We knew that David Bridie had been awarded this fellowship. We knew that he was travelling down in January. And he and I had a long conversation and he was going to keep a sound diary for us while he was there and then bring it back and we would include it in the book that was coming out in August of this year. And, of course, you know, he gets the call just a couple of days before he goes. He's, you know, he's got all his stuff laid out on the sofa ready to pack. And I didn't want to lose him from the book for a variety of reasons, one of which is we've talked a lot about the scientists who are in this edition, but I was really clear that we needed a lot of the humanities people as well. We've got Alessandro Antonello from Flinders University um, talking about the rocks of Gondwana from a sort of very humanities and and sort of um, deep history perspective or Ellie Leanne who talks about the different ways we imagine Antarctica in, in fiction and in writing and, you know, just how that allows us to experience it. So it was always really important to me, yes, this is a book with a lot of science in it, a book with a lot of climate change in it, but it's a book that really has the humanities front and centre as well. So I didn't want to let David Bridie go. So we had a long conversation about what he might be able to write for me about Antarctica without having gone to Antarctica. And we came up with the idea of silence, which is what he was hoping to explore down there. David's done a lot of extraordinary work um, through Papua New Guinea as well and through uh, Timor-Leste and um, Indonesia. And in Papua New Guinea, he talks about uh, this word bilas, which is uh, a word for kind of peripheral sound. So there's the there's the music that you're making and then there's the sound that sort of comes in around it. We started talking about how he might imagine that concept in Antarctica without having been there. And he wrote this quite sort of meditative piece about the role of silence, imagining the Antarctic silence, talking about the silences that he has experienced and this idea of Vilas from the highlands of PNG um, and the silence where he lives now, the silence of the Australian desert. So this lovely sort of, um, this lovely oral oral piece on the page, I guess. But he's very clear um, that the project with Joel um, was not just about, as he said, you know, this isn't Vaseline-lensed penguins no, and I love that music that you do yoga <laughs> by. This has to be um, this has to be art that acts. You know, mm. this is activism. And this mm. also ties into um, the book I just mentioned, Joel Gerges' book. She has this fantastic uh, line, which I'm just going to share with you. Um, we claim Joelle as a, as a Griffith Review writer because we were sort of part of the inception of her new book. But in Humanities Moment, she's got this great line where she says, art has always been the most powerful portal into the world of our emotions. It helps us imagine a world we cannot see. And I think in thinking about Antarctica as this imaginary space for most of us, most of us aren't going to be able to get on a ship and go down there or fly down there or, you know, sail down there in a yacht. The world we cannot see and the importance of sort of connecting with that idea, it's such critical work that the division makes possible through funding the um, arts fellowships mm. that they support. Mm. Um, the work of people like Elizabeth Leanne and, and everybody who works in this sort of Antarctic humanities space, mm. the work of people like Janet Lawrence, who mm. was an arts fellow who went down this year. Janet's an amazing visual artist and the work she brought into Real Pool World with us 
I love this. It's hard to describe it without seeing it, but just to, 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 as there is in all of your books, there's a there are two uh, visual contributions. That's I want to sneak Janet's in there because yeah, please. How she made the work is incredible. So she she was at Casey Station in the summer of 2022. And she asked the scientists there to give to give her pieces of the ice from Casey. And she took them into the, the studio that they'd set up for her and she set them onto these big sheets of white paper and she injected dye into these massive chunks of ice and blue dye, really, really rich blue dye. And then as the ice melted, of course, now the ice is a pigment, now it is a colour, and it melts onto this really thick paper and it makes what look like these absolutely exquisite maps of somewhere, of, you know, maybe it's one of Joel's, you know, maybe it's a map of one of Joel's worlds we can't see. Maybe it's the map of the future that James Bradley's imagining when he's saying what are they going to read in the ice cores. But they're these absolutely exquisite images made by the ice itself. And just to make this absolutely perfect, as a novelist, I was a complete sucker for the backstory behind these pictures, which are beautiful in and of themselves. We were talking then with Janet about, well, you know, how will we caption these? What will we, what, how will we sort of pin them to the page? We're going to tell people this is how you've made them, but what are the words that we want to bring here if they are maps of unseen, unknown, unreal places. And Janet said one of the books that she'd carried with her when she was down in the ice was by the beautiful nature writer Robert McFarlane, his writing about ice. And so we contacted Robert McFarlane and we said, would it be possible for us to use some of your words about ice with these exquisite images by Janet Lawrence, who's a very well-known Australian artist, it turned out that he thought her work was absolutely beautiful so we could set up this conversation between the two of them on the page, between Janet's words and Rob's, Janet's images and Rob's words. But it was this beautiful sort of artistic conversation as well then between these two artists who knew of each other's work and, and really admired that. So, you know, everything comes back to this idea of, of connectivities and points of intersection and collaboration and cooperation, which I just think that's one of the most beautiful little microcosms um, that you could possibly ask for as an editor when you're starting to bring a very amorphous project like this one together and into, into one set of covers. What I'd like to end with, Ash, I'd like to end with what we started and that's um, I'd like to look at the the work that you've included by the late Jessie Blackadder, and that's, as you say, a combination of the public blog that she made on her second trip there in 2018 and her private diary, and that, as you say, was made available amazingly by her, her partner, Andy. I think the most striking thing, I think we'll leave the readers to read for themselves those visceral descriptions mm. Um of her experience, which are pretty amazing. What I wanted to ask you about was the amazing, sorry, what I wanted to ask you about was the incredible poem that's mm. the last, that's the last piece from her diary. Would you like just to talk a little bit about that, which is a pretty extraordinary piece of work, I think. Absolutely. And thank you um, for the chance of sort of spotlighting this one in particular. Um, part of what intrigues me as a writer and it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about in the amazing four years of editing Griffith Review, 
is the work of translation and accommodation that writers go through to get something that is internal, that's of them, whether it's, you know, very emotional or very personal or, you know, just something that maybe they're the only person in the world who really knows about or can think about, how they mediate that to get it out into the external world where a reader can read it and and has the chance to sort of take it into themselves. It's one of the most amazing things about being an editor is not just working with the words on the page but the conversations that you get to have with the person and you you're you're with them as part of that sort of exchange process that they're undertaking of understanding how to make something so deeply internal external and what I'm so um astonished we managed to do in a sense with this work of Jessie's was I, I just asked Andy if she would share with me um, some pages of Jessie's diary and I had access to the blogs and I wondered I hadn't really spoken to Andy about this but I wondered whether it might be possible to see this sort of um, the work that Jessie had done in this space around her personal experience of Antarctica and, and what she wanted how she wanted to explain that for people who were not her for the people on the outside of her the pages that Andy sent through spoke so perfectly to this in terms of being able to see exactly what Jessie had had wrestled with herself and then how she mediated it for readers and so we intercut these sections together so the public and the private which is the public and the private what she yeah. was putting out there publicly and what yeah. she herself was feeling yeah, and so this poem is is uh, from her diary. So it's you know this is the first time it's been published, um, and we chose to end the uh, her piece in the book with this. Um, I'd love to read it if we've got time. Nick. Yeah. Is that okay? Please. So it's called. We've just called it the diary, and it's from the eleventh of January in twenty nineteen. This place, this time. This place for this time is home. You inhabit habitation, living between the profound and prosaic. This place where sky surrounds you and ice stretches south to unimaginable horizons. Ice and stone, cloud, wind, unblinking sun, light with no end and no start. You can feel very large and very small completely present or nowhere at all. You look for words because that's what you know. Here it seems an intangible skill, hard to pin down, hard to show. Here people deal in metal and wood and fuel and cable and machinery or in numbers, measurements, microchips. Here there's no hiding the heroic and the shameful, the prosaic and profound on display in 24-hour daylight. Here's a quiet courage, what it took to step up and strike out all that's been risked on every side to come this distance and say, here, you'll live for this time, unmoored from the old, afloat, adrift. Over this time, the cream blue scallops of polished sea ice soften crack, split, turn white, break apart. With all preparations, you can still fall. This place is absolutely safe and dangerous. 
You're not home here long enough to know all the ways. You long for something to take home, something you can hold and touch and see, something that exists in the world. You still can't find the words to say why the ice calls you so. The sound you want to remember, crack of Adeli, tweeping of emperor chicks and the deep trumpet of their parents. Ice underfoot that's hollow, melt streams off the plateau. The broken glass chink of the ice plateau in the melt, the wind in the mornings rattling the bliss lines. The raw hum of the MPH sliding into your dreams. The silence out at Fang and Rum and Hendo, the wind in the chip packet, the sliver of scree underfoot, your own loud breath walking in the cold wind. You find time of company and time without, connection, friendship, loneliness. The other home feels far away. You find friendship too stretching beyond the horizon and out of sight. You don't know yet how deep it goes. Ash, thank you. That seems a really appropriate place to stop. We should we should perhaps dedicate this to the late Jessie Blackadder. I, I knew her as well. We both we both had worked with her. What I'd like to do now is to thank you for all of your work. Listeners, Ash has edited 16 books. That's four books for each of the four years she's been editor of Griffith Review, and she's just created the most astonishing body of work. She's now moving on to the next stage. She's reverting to her role, as she says, as a novelist at large, Mm -hmm. but she's not just that. She's also the adjunct associate professor at Griffith University. So, Ash, I'd, I'd like to wish you just the very, very best, and thank you for the wonderful conversations that we've had here together. Thank you, Nick, for all of those things. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au, to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.